Welcome and happy Friday. This is Travelog, the podcast of Condé Nast Traveler, and I'm here in the Condé Nast Podcast Studios with a bunch of regulars. We got Mark Elwood back at Hello. the table. Mm-hmm. Say hi, Mark. Hello. It's nice to be back. Where have you been? I've been in Chengdu and Oaxaca and <laughs> London. Wow. Many places. Mm-hmm. We got Seb here, Seb Modak. Hello. And Catherine Legrave. Hi, hi. So all of those folks are editors for Condé Nast Traveler. And dialing in, we have Sarah Khan, who is a writer for us and for many other places. And you've also Mm -hmm. been an editor and many other things. And you are in San Diego right now, Sarah, right? I am indeed. But you've also been globetrotting a lot this year and always, I I guess. (laughs) Yeah, that's the perks of the job. So this year was Condé Nast Traveler's 30th anniversary. We turned 30. Yay. And we've been celebrating for the last couple of months. Really, September was the anchor month. That's when our first issue came out. But one of the things that we wanted to look at is we've looked at many things that have changed in travel over the last 30 years. And one of the things we want to take a look at is how some places have changed. So we wanted to look at a handful of places that have changed rather dramatically in the last 30 years. And so that set of pieces actually came out this week. And it felt like a really good time to visit that and look at some of these in greater detail. And you guys, Seb and Catherine, I know you guys worked on this a lot um, inside the house. And I'm wondering, what were the criteria for looking at this? How did we come to this uh, definition of the kind of change we were looking for? I mean, I think you look at the places that we've chosen, and they're all different, um, but they all have sort of uh, some sort of transformation that we will we were able to point at. Um, you know, whether that be political or whether that be just because of there really were no tourists that were going there before. You know, all of all of the stories that we have on our site have that thread throughout that we were able to sort of pick out the one thing. And I think it was the ones that like surprised us most because I think you could find changes in most places over the last 30 years. But it's the ones that kind of stop you in your tracks and you're like, like if you were put in a time capsule 30 years ago, chronogenically frozen, and then you woke up in that same city or that same country and you'd be like, I can't recognize this place. And we kind of work backwards too, right? It was looking at the world's most visited city, right? Hong Kong. We're looking at that. We're looking at a place that everyone keeps talking about, Iceland, Iceland, Iceland. And then we're sort of going back and just kicking around the idea, well, what was it like 30 years ago? And I worked on San Francisco, which was one of the cities we looked at. But what I think you guys did brilliantly, and I can say this because I didn't pick the different cities, was you were very careful to use each to show different ways cities can change. So the criteria was these cities will be very different, but each of them has a very distinctive reason why. It wasn't just gentrification, which changes lots of cities. It was economics at the root of it, politics, or gentrification. So I think it shows us how tourism can be birthed by lots of different reasons. Mm -hmm. We were thinking about that moment of the late 80s when the magazine was born and kind of what the world was like then and what were the places and, and how did the landscape look and how different it is today the way the conversation is very different today around some of these locations. I do think, I will just I will say, I think one of the most interesting things to do, if you're in a vintage store or a junk store and you find old magazines, look at the old travel magazines and you will be startled when you see the destinations they feature. Whether, especially, <laughs> I will tell you that if you look in the 80s, those destinations are less in sync with what we see now than the ones from the 60s. If you go back to the 60s, to holiday or to life, 
strangely, a lot of the destinations that feel fresh now were being featured then in a diff- different way. But I love looking at old travel magazines because it catches you so off guard. Yeah, we, we did a lot of that nearing the 30th yeah. th- birthday, and it was it was funny. Yeah. It was if you funny. find an old traveler in your local junk store, please tweet us the cover and yeah, tell yeah. us what your favorite feature was. Shoot the cover. So let's just run down quickly before we dive into some of these, what the list was. There was uh, South Africa, which, Sarah, you, you wrote about for us. Mm-hmm. Um, and I know you've lived there before. San Francisco, Mark kind of dove into that, um, and we can certainly talk about that. Hong Kong, which Kate Springer wrote about for us. Berlin, which Elliot Stein took on for us. He's living there now, I think, right? Mm-hmm. Yep. And then, Seb, you did Columbia, mm-hmm. um, where you have familial connections. And then Tyler Moss did Iceland for us. So South Africa, San Francisco, Hong Kong, Berlin, Colombia, and Iceland. That's a lot of territory, a lot of different places, as we were describing. Maybe why don't we just dive in and, and sort of follow the path that you guys took and talk a little bit about South Africa. Sarah, maybe you could lead us down that. Um, What's the biggest difference in South Africa these days? I mean, I think it's just night and day because, you know, 1987, South Africa was an apartheid state and now it definitely isn't. So just kind of seeing how far it's come in the last three decades and having lived there for four years in the last couple of years as well, it's just been really eye opening. And I think, you know, when apartheid fell, it was almost a natural tourism instigator because there had been so many boycotts in place for so long. And I think there was so much goodwill towards Mandela. And there's just so much excitement when it was finally done that I think automatically, there's just a whole new level of interest in 1994 with the democratic elections. And I think it's just been rising steadily ever since. Sarah, did the shift, did it change the kind of tourists that came. I know that apartheid obviously put South Africa, it brought it in from the cold and it stopped it being boycotted economically. But has it helped more short-haul tourists from elsewhere in Africa who will be largely black Africans? Has it brought them more likely there? Or is that Um, still the next wave? I think that's still the next wave only because inter-Africa travel is still a challenge. I mean, it definitely happens a lot and there's a lot of business travel that happens. But at the same time, I feel like it's almost easier to get to South Africa from Europe than it Mm -hmm. is to get there from other parts of Africa sometimes. One of the things that's curious about this to me at a larger scale is I'm old enough now to remember being a young person in the late 80s and the discourse around South Africa at that time, the argument was for universities and corporations to divest themselves Mm -hmm, of South Africa. mm -hmm. And young people in the United States, Western young people, were very much at the center of that movement. I went to the free Nelson Mandela concert at Wembley Stadium in London in 1991. I was at a free Mandela rally in Hyde Park in 1987. So, Sarah, you understand, it was, and I remember how inspirational it was. I mean, South Africa was a bogeyman of evil, mm-hmm. but the idea that once Madiba was free that everything would change, I think it did feel that there was a potential for everything to be great if he was allowed to be who he was. And I always think how n- nice it is that we were right in the sense that his release and rise did bring that rainbow nation that was, it did give South Africa a chance. And I think it's also just we're talking 30 years because of the 30th birthday, but I think more than any other place on this list, it's just insane how recent the change was. Because we're not talking about 
when the first issue of Conan as Traveler came out, which was 87. 87, yeah. We're talking about 1994, which is like mm -hmm. yesterday. Yeah. Because we, yeah. we, we can all, you know, I mean, I was young, younger than you guys, but like you guys can talk about it in the present day about like, you know, having having been there um, for well, what, that. What I was going to say is I feel like now you've kind of done this 180 where young people are kind of at the forefront of exploring South Africa and have kind of made Cape Town an anchor city around the world, you know, along with some others for sure. But I, I feel like the discourse has just radically changed in those 30 years for people in that young person age group. And it's still changing, right, Sarah? I mean, like, there was a time not too recently where people would think twice or thrice about going to Johannesburg on a vacation. And I think that's yeah. that's changed over the last few years. See, I yeah, was... I mean, I think it's definitely still a pretty challenging country for a lot of people. But at the same time, it's just the last five years specifically, um, or I guess seven years now, wow, 2010 was a while ago. I think after the World Cup, there's mm. been a lot of cleaning up of the image. There's been a lot of uh, more investment in the infrastructure. And I think that was probably probably the biggest turning point for South Africa as far as tourism goes. That's what I was going to ask you, Sarah. So the, what, to me, when I think about the what, pivotal turning which point... Which World Cup was? was 2010. 2010. 2010. Okay. In your research, how fundamental was being awarded the World Cup and therefore having to, you know, redo the airports, do all sorts of things. How important was that? Because I, I think we assume it was just apartheid ending, but my impression is that that was super important. No, definitely, because I think in general, the sports tourism was huge for South Africa because obviously they were a prior state for so long and, you know, their sports teams weren't allowed to compete with a lot of other people and other sports teams wouldn't come and actually compete in South Africa. So the first step was the Rugby World Cup in 95, I think was pretty huge um, because that just was the first time people really kind of came in with that level of interest and those sort of numbers. And then that was sort of gave them the inspiration to think that maybe we can do other things like this too. And then for the World Cup, they had to invest a lot more in their stadiums, in their airports, in the highways. Um, and, you know, obviously safety was a huge thing. I know I only moved to Cape Town after the World Cup, but from everyone that I've talked to, pre-2010, you know, the CBD, you just couldn't go from like one street to the next without, you know, being fearing for your life. Whereas post-World Cup, a lot of more effort was done into cleaning up the CBD. And I think even though a lot of that was, there was criticism because it was sort of being instigated by this influx of outsiders, at the same time, the country is definitely continuing to reap the benefits of those sort of um, of those infrastructural changes. You know, Sarah, I went through the old Joburg Airport and mm -hmm. then I went through the new post-World Cup Airport. And Seb, when you were in Africa, did you ever, do, you were there only after the new airport, right? When, when was the new airport built? 2010, like so in time for 2010. before and after, actually. I've done both, yeah. So yeah. do you remember the old Joburg yeah. Airport, I remember feeling a bit like a lunatic asylum where there were sort of people <laughs> looking down on you mm -hmm. and you no, were do penned in. And I thought, well, I'm penned in and therefore I'm safe. Please don't let me get marooned here overnight because I just will get murdered being in Joburg overnight. Mm -hmm. And then I went through the new airport and it was like Heathrow. Yeah, totally. And that radical difference was, I mean, extraordinary. You see that I, in, in, the, in the CBD, too. I would tell people who hadn't been to South Africa in a few years that I was staying at a hotel in Joburg CBD in Bramfontein, and they'd be like, are you absolutely out of your mind? Like, what are you going to do after sunset? And now yeah. it's just like I was there for a street art festival. You know, there's all this activity. There's, the, there's a 
you know, a farmer's market every Sunday or something right right in that area. It's just like mm-hmm. well, it, revitalized. It, I mean, and again, it comes back to, to, I just remember where it was back then and where it's come to where now it's this hub of culture, you know, and we're talking about the museum openings are, are just sort of, you know, record shattering. And back in the day, it was the place that, you know, I remember Bono doing that. I'm not going to play Sun City, you know, kind of routine. Yeah. It was like, a, it was a, it was a Go cultural sing pariah. Going, we ain't going to play yeah. Sun City. <laughs> I can't do the Bono voice. Man. I don't have it. I don't have the pipes. You have the sunglasses though? <laughs> yeah. Um, but yeah, it's just like, it was a cultural pariah, you know, as a result of apartheid. So there are multiple issues here, you know, over the years. And I feel like um, it's just come to this place where it really is a, a global destination from, from yeah. multiple points of view. And I, mean, I don't want to gloss over it either because there still is a lot of inequality and there's a lot of issues and it's kind of weird because in some ways tourists are almost shielded from that totally. but at the same time it has come a long way it's the biggest um, contributor to GDP right now so people are definitely reaping the benefits for sure I was sorry I was what I was gonna say is well, I'm sure we have I hope we have some listeners in some of the places we're talking about and I'd love to I'm sure we'd love to hear from all of you your on the ground perspectives because we haven't been in those destinations for 30 years we know them very well but I'd love to know if there are people in South Africa who have anything to add to this because it would be fascinating the observations of someone full time for example tweet at us please (laughs) yeah do tweet us we love that and I do think too it's interesting to to note Sarah as you just did you know that though it's come a long way there's still room for it to go and I'm interested in your perspective on what you feel like is the next phase for South Africa how does it feel where does it feel like things are headed in the immediate future Well, I think as far as like what you just referred to, the arts and culture scene, I think is booming. And I think it has been for a while. And obviously when you're coming out of a lot of strife like apartheid and the political situation and the violence that has happened there for so long, there's been a lot of really interesting art that's been created from that. And I think that's been happening for a while, but now with things like the Zeitsmoka in Cape Town, I think there's just a lot more global attention on it. So I think that's probably the next phase is where people have already been interested in South Africa for its natural beauty and its safaris, but now people are kind of cottoning on to the fact that there's this really exciting arts and culture scene there. Great. So, Mark, maybe we should talk, is this a good time to talk about San Francisco? It's always a good time to talk about San Francisco. <laughs> uh, okay. Why don't you Why don't you lay down See, your... I feel like I'm teaching my, we would say in Britain, teaching my grandmother to suck eggs when you're telling what? someone, have you ever heard that phrase? No. 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 Wait, what no. is that? Teaching your grandmother to suck eggs, which is telling someone... <laughs> sure this is a, I know we mark this explicit. Is this appropriate? <laughs> <laughs> I think teaching your grandmother this to suck eggs... This is not the white week for that, is, Mark. <laughs> is mansplaining, essentially, is when you tell someone who already knows something thing and I feel like Brad is a lover of San Francisco who lived there for a long time so forgive me Brad no, I'm sure okay, you're no, no, no. conversation well okay I didn't know much about San Francisco and you and I worked together on your piece and what I thought was most like the the broad sentence was it's changed a lot because of mother nature and human nature which was a sentence I really liked talk about that thank you Catherine. yeah Goodness, wow, good setup yeah well I, done I, I will say I've been going to San Francisco for 20 years I was assigned San Francisco when I worked for the rough guides I was assigned San Francisco as a territory because the editorial director said you don't unabashedly love San Francisco and most people just gush about it and I want someone who's a little bit more reserved about its assets and its its downsides. So I started going... Can I tell you something that maybe encapsulates all of that? Because mm-hmm. I am both of those mm-hmm. things. San Francisco would have adored the headline on your article. And I... And I Wait, what was that? What was that? Like? Say it again. It was, we, we took it from... Uh, 
Weren't you here for that? We took it from two quotes I think that you had in your article. I wasn't I think here. It was San Francisco went from second-rate city to center of the universe. Oh. There is nothing. So we used, <laughs> I, I, when I moved to New York- Those are two quotes. Told, yeah, somebody told me a joke, which is that San Francisco's been in a competition with New York that New York was not aware of. <laughs> was that you? <laughs> That's your joke. That's Mark Elwood's joke. That's my joke. I mean, I always think that people in San Francisco, and, and again, please tell me, listeners in San Francisco, is this still happening? I always laugh because people would say, well, it's better than it would be in New York, as if we, I was going to argue, and I would say, sure, <laughs> it is, okay. But what I, Catherine, Catherine's point about Mother Nature and human nature, again, there was a very pivotal incident, a bit like the South African World Cup or apartheid. There was a big earthquake in 1989 in San Francisco, which wrecked bits of downtown that needed rehabbing. So Mother Nature, and there was some loss of life, and it was terrible, but the aftermath of that, because the city was civic-minded, instead of just rebuilding as was, they took a deep breath and said, we had an earthquake in the early 1900s and didn't rebuild better. We should learn the lessons from that. And they opened up areas like Hayes Valley, which is unabashedly my favorite part of San Francisco, which back then, before the earthquake, was under a freeway. So no one really wanted to live there. And they replanned the traffic. So that made San Francisco, the city, very livable. But at the same time, people were... San Francisco had always been a place to get rich quick. I always say this about San Francisco. It's always been liberal because a whole load of random people moved there for the gold rush and got along. But it's also been people who moved there to make money. They, It was created by people who thought they could make a buck overnight. So it's always had that in its DNA. And that little bit of the, the tech boom, the minute there were a few tech people there, it was welcoming to people who were looking to get rich quick. And that that helped those people moved there and the rolling stone the rolling stone gathered faster and faster and it is unrecognizable i remember going to san francisco on my first uh, road tour around california in 1995 and the hotels were really shabby really shabby and the last time i tried to book a hotel in san francisco i thought you've got to be kidding me i mean you've got to be kidding that hotel used to be 50 bucks the del sol mm -hmm. yeah. on lombard street is a glorified motel yeah. and it was 99 dollars at most it was 450 dollars <laughs> for a motel room painted in bright colors and i thought in a nutshell yeah that's the change yeah i mean i think there's 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 all kinds of things to, and I have so many feelings about this. I lived in San Francisco for ten years. Be the rest, yeah. the you guys ready for the rest years. of the podcast? Here we go. No, I just, I, I think what was interesting to me is because I lived there during in the in the in the post earthquake era, right? I lived I lived yeah. there from about 1991 or 1992 up to about 2002, and I'll give you a little anecdote about that. So that process by which the results of the earthquake turned into what we see today in terms of the Embarcadero, in terms of Hayes Valley, in terms of, you know, the tearing down of the freeway. It took years. It took so long. And I think that was an, that was emblematic. People saw that even there as emblematic of the way San Francisco worked, which was extremely deliberative, um, taking its time, um, trying to figure things out. And I'm curious, I, I say this all all with reference to how things are today, so I'll bring it back around to that at some point, but I'll give you the moment in time where that was particularly acute is that in 1994, I believe there was the earthquake down in Los Angeles, the Northridge earthquake. And we in San Francisco watched that sort of happen, and I had friends who had family and 
and so forth in, in Southern California. And Southern California basically rebuilt within a year or two, right? Like that freeway was reconstructed. Um, and the way Los Angeles did that was incredibly decisive and deliberative. And they basically told the contractor, we'll give you a million dollar bonus if you finish ahead of schedule. And they did. Mm -hmm. Right. And so that freeway, the 405 went back up or whatever it was. And I was still at that time, you know, making my way in Hayes Valley around the relic of the freeway that had. Do you remember walking around? Because I I, I don't remember when I got to San Francisco in 96, it was 96, actually. There wasn't much detritus to deal with that I remember. There wasn't detritus, but they hadn't figured out what the hell to do with that area. And I, I don't remember when this was. It would have been in the early 90s. But, you know, I, Hayes Valley was for sure a, a sort of like no-go zone in a way and lower the lower hate. And I can remember, you know, many, many sort of times passing through that. And it was not a place that you hung out. There weren't restaurants down there. There weren't the things that there, that there came to be in the late 90s and, and sort of developed. But I would also say there's a dark side to all of that because part of what San, this is and this is very San Francisco too which is that part of what San Francisco did and continues to do and I think this is something we could talk about endlessly is sort of relocate populations from those centers like the lower Haight and Hayes Valley had projects in them and those projects basically got moved and they got like sort of shipped out of the center of town in order to make space for tartine and like whatever else is in Jardinier and like everything else is down there. And I don't say that to cast dispersions, but I just, I say that because th th that continues to happen because where they went was the third street corridor. And then they got moved from the third street corridor because tech needed another place to go to. See, I would argue, and I, I don't, I don't want to monopolize this. I feel like Brad and I are having a sort of middle-aged man Francisco crisis podcast. about San Francisco. <laughs> I have no idea what the hell um, you guys are talking yeah. about. The, no, no, but but I would argue what I think is interesting is, and I would always send people here. I would send people to the Sunset and the Richmond because what San Francisco has in common with of our six changed destinations, San Francisco and Hong Kong are space limited. They're places that really struggle to squeeze the change into a tight space. And people forget that San Francisco has two very residential neighborhoods either side of Golden Gate Park, the Sunset and the Richmond, which are real life. They're not some tech hub. They're not some windswept warehouse area. There's like a Chinese-American community way better than downtown with fantastic dim sum. And, and they never will be because the weather is shitty. Exactly. Because they never will be. They will always Mother be Mother nature and human yes, nature. Exactly. No, you're <laughs> Thank right. Thank you, Sam. You're right. But I would, but I would encourage Copyright people. Copyright Michael. Thank you. Yes, I'm just... I'm, <laughs> Pay him a nickel every time you say it. <laughs> no, but I think that's... But I would encourage people. You know, there's this really complicated relationship we have between when things change and we got somewhere after it changed and we feel like we missed something. And I think that's that complicated way that we want to have been pioneers. And I would say, A... Don't worry about being pioneers. Enjoy San Francisco as it is. But also, there are still bits of San Francisco that retain a non-techie sheen. And I love walking around the Richmond and the Sunset. They're two of my favorite places because they're a little shabby. There's a great secondhand bookstore. I can get my dim sum. I can walk into... and Golden that, Gate Park is out there. Exactly. And it's an amazing Richard Olmsted designed park. 
Olmsted and Vox just just I think Vox was involved or just Richard. Yeah, maybe Olmsted. I can't remember. Yeah, but yeah. Someone will tweet us and correct us. Please tell me. But I think to your point too, in terms of Mother Nature, the other thing that is a constant in San Francisco that you that just never fails is can't be affected by all these other things is the natural beauty of the city itself, and that's created by geography. It's created by the hills. It's created by the bay. It's created by the mountains beyond it. And I just think whatever happens to the housing stock, whatever however the neighborhoods sort of morph moving around that city and sort of experiencing that physical beauty is something that is never going to go away. And you see what I would, and I'd love to throw this to Seb now, because I think this is a really good contrast. What I think we've, when I talk about Hong Kong and San Francisco, those are both cities that were on the world map in one way or another. San Francisco more so now than when I first visited, but always British people dreamed of going to San Francisco and Hong Kong was a global hub. I'm very interested in the cities that were sort of nowheresville on the international map, like Reykjavik or some of the Colombian cities. They've pivoted in a really different way. Mm-hmm. Is that you know? Oh, that's totally fair. Medellin, talk about talk about Medellin. Well, yeah, I mean, Colombia. Colombia suck, suck eggs or yeah no <laughs> British people who listen Mark, tell me I'm not gonna to suck, suck eggs with my egg. abuela but I'll uh, try it to get like into dirty. <laughs> um, yeah I mean 30 years ago Colombia was for lack of a better word off limits to tourists um, off limits to some Colombians uh, the Colombians who, who got out was it though? I mean, that's my impression that Colombia in the eighties would like, feel. Even even Colombians in Colombia, and I'm talking, you know, there are people who had no choice but to be affected by this conflict and affected heavily, who couldn't leave, who didn't have the means to leave. Um, but there are also certain Colombians who stayed, who might have, you know, in the past gone to the countryside occasionally or had farms in the countryside, where suddenly they just had to abandon them because the countryside became too dangerous. Um, and this this is a very, obviously very complicated history that can date back to like La Violencia of 1948, and but basically starting in the 60s, a uh, kind of web of left wing guerrilla movements like the FARC, which most people have heard of, and ELN, um, right wing paramilitaries, the government, then the drug trade, kind of all got embroiled together, um, creating you know at a point in 1991, the city of Medellin had the highest murder rate in the world, 375 murders per 100,000 citizens uh, per year, which is just insane. You don't find cities with that number anymore, really. Um, Wait, say it again? 375 murders per 100,000 citizens. Murders. Murders, like homicides. Not Um, just people being shot. No, and then in in the the course of the conflict, um, which is considered to be the longest running conflict in the world, between 1958 and like 2013, we're talking about like 220,000 people killed because of the conflict. Um, and growing up, my Colombian family largely left. I still have some there, but largely left in the 70s and 80s because it was just becoming too dangerous for them. Um, and they had the means to leave. But they some settled in the U.S. Some Most of my extended family now lives in Ecuador. But the change now is unbelievable. Like if we want to zero in on Medellin, that place that was the yeah, center. What is Medellin today? So, I mean, it was... Pablo Escobar's home. It was where the Medellin cartel, Pablo's cartel, existed. And today, it has the same homicide rate as Cincinnati, Ohio, which is an interesting fact. And it's become like this tech center and entrepreneurship center for South America. It's like a leading innovator in city planning. Um, I remember actually being a kid in 
India, no, in, in Indonesia, and so many countries. And my so mom, hard to remember. <laughs> shut up, Fred. And my mom. Regular uh, listeners will know. And I remember my mom <laughs> meeting up with these Colombians who were in town to teach the Indonesian, the Jakarta city government, how to like properly create bus lanes because Medellin had bec- was becoming like a on the forefront of kind of city development and things like that. See, I would say I think Colombia and Venezuela have switched positions in terms yeah, of destinations that in the 80s Venezuela yeah, was this gorgeous true. glorious sexy interesting South American country and through mismanagement and corruption has ended up a place that most airlines won't fly yeah. I went to Colombia for the first time this year I went to Bogota and it was one of my favorite unexpected discoveries this is what people say now and then that's that's the thing and there's also still I talk about this in my piece, but the thing that Colombia is dealing with, which maybe some of these other destinations are not, is reputation. Is that for, and it's a reputation perpetuated in media still today, just go watch Narcos, you know, like where I like, I, I grew up telling people I was from Colombia and the the joke would immediately be about like, oh, so you can like find me some cocaine, you know, yeah. like it's like not, that's not funny, we man. Americans are um, so sophisticated. <laughs> but, I, but I will but, say, but it's, it's, that's like become the thing. Like I talk about a, tourism campaign where and it was a very successful one where the slogan at the end of it was the only risk is that you'll never want to leave or you'll, you'll want to stay so it's them acknowledging the, the fact that Las that, Vegas that, way that they met it head on yeah, exactly. rather than rather than saying oh no come as a family they're saying we know you're a little intimidated and actually you'll find out that the big problem isn't how violent and dangerous it is. The big problem is it's amazing. It's amazing. Aside, aside from the cities, I mean, one thing that you talked about in your piece, which I thought was amazing, was just it becoming an ecotourism destination. Right. And Talk about the birds. Right. And that's super interesting, too, is because, so, I mean, the, the whole conflict and talking about what stopped it is super politically loaded. There was the peace treaty last year, the Nobel Peace Prize to, to the current president, Santos. Um but then if you ask certain Colombians, the reason it's safe now is his his predecessor, Alvaro Uribe. Those two people don't necessarily get along. It's very, it's very loaded. But the truth is that at least throughout the kind of early 2000s, the conflicts kind of got pushed away from the cities and population centers into these super remote regions of Colombia and the jungles and all of that. And because of that, and it's not because the FARC are, you know, um, especially conservation minded, but like these areas are untouched because of that, because people weren't going. There was no tourism infrastructure developed there because they were so dangerous. So now Colombia has a chance to really like lead the way in ecotourism because 20, 30 years ago, that wasn't even on the really agenda. And, and it well might. Let's remember what I think is also really gratifying is regardless of your political affiliation, Colombia has recognized that tourism is an opportunity and it has certain assets and it is not squandering right. those willfully. So it has, it has more species of birds than anywhere on earth, more than Brazil next door, more species of orchids than anywhere on earth. These are true facts. <laughs> um, and and suddenly they can they can create this new tourism infrastructure, ecotourism infrastructure around that with kind of a global conscious that exists now towards conservation and responsible tourism. So what I will say, Seb, what stunned me about Bogota, which was also a knock-on from the war, and it shows how you never know how things will be transformed. When I was in Bogota for my story, I was chatting with people and, and one woman said to me, you know, what happened was a lot of people were displaced from around the country by the war, which is terrible. The most in in the world, the most and internally displaced people in the they world. They were 
More more than Syria? Yeah. I didn't know it was that. I mean, I knew it was a huge number of people, and they were obviously drawn to the magnets of the major cities, in particular Bogota, which, as often happens, creates petty crime and problems initially. But that was long enough ago now that an awful lot of that has been ironed out. And it has made Bogota a shorthand for Colombia full of lots of regional people. And as a visitor now, I just felt like I was benefiting from this wonderful ability to try different bits of Colombia in Bogota. And everyone had sort of integrated and and worked together. And I I couldn't recommend it more highly. And I think it also makes me very happy that you did go to Bogota because there's also this trend where everyone goes to Cartagena. It's been, at least since, even, even during the conflict, Cartagena largely escaped the violence that kind of took over the rest of the country. Um, that's a mix of just because of its geographical location, because the drug war was between the Cali cartel and the Medellin cartel, two different cities. But it largely escaped it, and you know the old town got developed as a result. It was a UNESCO World Heritage Site, all of that. But still today, I find people, they're like, I'm going to Colombia. I'm like, great, where are you going? And it's always Cartagena. It's like, cool, maybe maybe now's the time to start expanding your horizons, to see Medellin, to see Bogota, to see the national parks that were all but off limits 10 years ago. Um, so I think it's encouraging that you went to Bogota. Oh, it really was. And, and that's not to say you shouldn't go to Cartagena. Cartagena is beautiful. Bogota but like, is one of my two new favorite places I discovered this year. And um, I would recommend... Anyone, I don't think it's necessarily a particularly family-friendly destination in the sense that it's, there aren't huge museums or ways to occupy younger children. But I think if you're uh, a, an adult of different whatever age, there's an incredible, the food's wonderful. There's some interesting, less family-focused museums. So if you want a, like a little romantic getaway, the air connections are terrific, yeah. especially if you're in the south or the east. And it's safe. Everybody. Oh. <laughs> I walked around everywhere. La Candelaria, downtown, the really historic downtown, I wouldn't wander around late at night on my own. But, but there you could say that about many plenty cities of cities the across the world, I would say <laughs> exactly. that. Exactly. All right. Let's talk about Hong Kong. I mean, Hong Kong, like of all, you know, like you said, Mark, Hong Kong was a destination in 1987, right? It was a stopover city, east meets west. And one of the things we talked about in the piece was kind of similar to San Francisco. It's like it's running out of space and it got cosmopolitan very quickly. It was sort of this glamorous British colony and and strains of that remain. But I think that the title that we have on the piece is like, Hong Kong struggled to retain its soul. Right, yeah, I, I asked because because it felt like one of those places where we have this sort of relatively positive story everywhere else, but here's a little bit of tension. Right, because right. I mean, I think, and it has nothing, you know, it has to do just with being Hong Kong, where it's this kind of breakneck pace city, whether it was under the British or the Chinese, but that as it develops, as it runs out of space, the first things to go aren't the shopping yeah. malls or or business centers. It's the like traditional bird market or, you know, the kind of the food, the street food stalls or whatever else, where that's what gets crowded out. And I think people who are nostalgic of an older Hong Kong, that's what they remember as the character of the city, not necessarily the kind of sterile giant skyscrapers. It's like the getting lost in a in an open air market. Which is becoming more and more rare as the city kind of is may the I, center of hyper-capitalism. May I, may I talk know? about an unpopular opinion? I think that as a British person, and I'm curious if any other British listeners have this perspective, 
there's a, a book called Old Filth by Jane Gardam, a fantastic book. And it's filth is a terminology that British people of a certain age are well aware of because it's failed in London, try Hong Kong. It's the filths. <laughs> mm. And I think the perspective on what Hong Kong was and what it is now from Americans or other English speakers versus the British, Hong Kong is way better off now being an interesting, messy, angry mm. bit of China that they had to, when I was lost in Hong Kong last summer, they had to glue the sidewalk down because they were going to throw the the stones at the Chinese politico who was visiting Hong Kong and Macau. In Macau, they were like, it's fine. In Hong Kong, they were angry and difficult and they're constantly China's friction point versus under the British Raj, which really Hong Kong was the last outpost yeah. of. I don't think it was very appealing. No, I agree. And I think the things that, and, and you know, the article talks about this, is that the things that make Hong Kong great are the Chinese cultural aspects, that those are being crowded out just because of Hong Kong's kind of insatiable appetite for development. More and more. And, yes. and I totally okay. agree with you because I, I mean, I, when I lived in Hong Kong, I was three years old. I don't remember much, but it was before the handover. And my parents still have friends who were there at that time and British friends especially, who talk about it in that way of like the old British colonial officer and talking about the great days of the British Raj in India, same kind of thing. And it mm. it's very disconcerting because um, it feels like from a different time, but you're talking about 1997. Um, so I agree that, totally agree with you that like that perspective of Hong Kong's change isn't necessarily legitimate. No, and also in some ways I, I like that change. Or maybe it's the just challenges Hong Kong has had. But the one thing I'm glad is a little bit erasing this way that people wish British people who wished it was 1940 1935 could hide out in Hong Kong and deny the modern and, world. And and no matter, you know, whether the British I mean it might be because of its history with with the 100 year lease to to Britain and everything but whether it's under the Chinese or not, like Hong Kong is going to be different, you know, like they are going to be different and they're going to state that difference and they're going to protest that difference like they did a couple of years ago. Um, so I think like in terms of from that angle, that's kind of where the argument of the old things were better in Britain during the British days kind of falls apart because like they're always going to be different. Well, and I, but look, and I don't want to speak for people who are not here, right? Um, but we do have on our design team, we have a couple of folks who grew up in Hong Kong mm -hmm. or who were lived there as, as kids. And, you know, I was talking to one of them recently and she had been back. To, she goes back periodically to visit because she still has family there. And she was kind of saying she didn't have sort of a sharp opinion about this, but she was kind of feeling like this notion of tension, this notion of tension between the way things used to be and the way things are evolving to. They're not out of that yet. They're, the, the direction forward is not totally clear. And I do think that there are people who, for a variety of we're not talking about people who are British people or like, no. you know, whatever. And, and I think this notion of the way things used to be versus the way things are going, you know, China's in a particularly acute phase right now of evolution. And I think Hong Kong is its own thing within that. And I think even for people who did grow up there, the pace of change and the, and the, the texture of change is something that is, has yet to sort of fall into a, a kind of like comfortable, predictable zone. But I would also, I would encourage people who want to have an experience of grubby, grimy, interesting Hong Kong. It is still there. It's just on the, it's on, it's on Kowloon. Mm -hmm. If you take the subway 
literally the subway from TST or from Hong Kong Island. It is a half hour ride till truly an all Chinese, not quite China experience that doesn't feel gleaming and doesn't feel museum like. It's right. just regular people, Hong Kong people who work in the offices downtown. Yeah, I was just in Hong Kong uh, a few weeks ago and I had a, a Hong Kong guide and, you know, he would sort of tell us, oh, these are the things you do during the day. It was a sort of a food uh, oriented reason that I was there, but I had uh, free time one day and I went out to some of these neighborhoods and my proudest moment was when I came back and he was saying, oh, well, what'd you do? And I told him and he just looked at me and goes, why? Why'd you go there? <laughs> I said, because. <laughs> There are no expats there, right. mm -hmm. you know, and these are like recommendations that Kate actually gave me. So, like you said, there are still, you know, these pockets. You just have to seek them out like any rapidly growing cosmopolitan city, I'd say. Did you find it very sterile when you were there recently in general? Like, did you? I mean, once you no, no, no. I didn't. And I will also say... Uh, to, to, Places to fight, that big have a resistance But to also that. to fight yeah. Hong Kong's corner, and I think it's easy to make it a whipping boy. My friend Caroline was moved there for work a couple of, couple of years ago in a way that she was not particularly desperate to move to Hong Kong, but very open to it. And having been quite wary, she has embraced it and found it this incredible pit stop on her way back to Britain. But, uh, you know, I, I think it's I think it's easy to make Hong Kong the whipping boy here, but... All right. I think that's... A, that, I mean, that'll be so interesting to see what it's like in 30 years. Oh, yeah, for yes. sure. For yeah. sure. A lot's going to change there. Um, Berlin, Catherine, <laughs> a city close to I your mean, heart. 30 years ago, Berlin was two cities, right? Yeah. Technically split in two by the wall. You know, it wasn't one unified city until 1989. And so... It's just impossible to kind of look back at it back then. It was like we say in the piece, Elliot Stein does a great job talking about how it was cleaved in two. And when the wall came down, um, you know, you sort of had these artists move in. And Mark, you've talked about like how, how does a place develop as like a cultural capital. And I think Berlin is a great example of that. I, I think Catherine's point is very well made. I remember the Berlin Wall coming down, but there are plenty of people who are giving energy to Berlin right now for whom that's history, not experience. And I think that's really fundamental. When I think about the world's youth capital, mm. It's Berlin. And I think you can say the same thing about South Africa. Is that now you have people who are were born after when South Africa became what South Africa is today. Yeah, they're um, called the born freeze. There you go. And like that changes everything. When people are starting to be born in Colombia that have no personal connection to the conflict, it's also gonna change things. It's super interesting. Yeah, and I think the sense of possibility that exists with cohorts like that, you know, is you know, Berlin, I'm, I'm also old enough to remember the wall. And, and There's a I running think, theme wait, yeah, about Berlin. Wait, like wait what wall? Um, <laughs> no, but I think, I think to think of Berlin as I'm a, so glad you're here, Sarah, because like, you remember these things too. You know, like Weimar Republic and all of that kind of history, kind of way, way, way in the rearview mirror. I think Berlin, to think of Berlin as, a, as an epicenter of art and food and culture, you know, Berlin was perceived as a place of conflict, but also a dreary kind of like downtrodden sort of place. And to see the energy 
and the eclecticism that's there and the openness that's there, I think, is a remarkable transition. I mean, and it's one of the top major cities on my bucket list that I haven't been, I haven't been to yet. You also, as a musician, you're yeah. a creative person, both in your nine to five and your after activities. I think Berlin has accidentally become a template that many cities in the doldrums would like to replicate. Mm. Berlin's trajectory of all the places we talk about, these six transformed places over the last 30 years, Hong Kong, San Francisco, Iceland, whatever it is, Berlin is the one that everyone envies a bit because it's transformed, retained its personality and its distinctiveness it's retained affordability it's it also hasn't like turned its back on the history like it's still it's on display cool. right? yeah. it's still really German and I think that it occupies a very interesting place that way because even though going to Berlin is no longer a pioneering thing I'm, I'm with Seb I've been there for 48 hours I'm desperate to go back and mm. explore somewhere really cool we're late to the party but we're st- yeah. we still want to go and I'd love to know if there are any sort of city planners or people. Is Berlin constantly held up as this template of how to do this right? Because as outsiders, I think we perceive Berlin as the good case history, while other ones have little footnotes and caveats. Berlin is the win-win. I mean, I do I've have heard it referred to that way by artists all over the world. I mean, I met Sarah, I met some graffiti artists in South Africa who just were talking about, we need to get to Berlin, yeah. as like that being the mecca of, <laughs> of street art around the world. And I think just, I mean, I'm kind of like you, Seb, I only went for the first time last year, it was like high on my bucket list. And I kind of feel like, yeah, I was definitely post the pioneer phase. And I felt like it almost felt a little bit scrubbed up and cleaner than I expected it mm. to be overall. But it still definitely had that really cool energy. And the food was a lot more exciting than I thought it would be. <laughs> Did Surprise. you show off about it though, Sarah? The thing is, I feel like Berlin's one of those places that you sort of casually name drop on social media or with your friends like, oh, when I was in Berlin, yeah. it still has that ability oh to my kind God. of convey cachet. I remember, I re- this is going to be such a funny anecdote. I when I'd this- been up for 24 hope, straight hours uh, in Berlin. I hope this person isn't <laughs> listening, but I remember throwing a house party in college and we all had a, you know, we had set our playlist beforehand and this woman who was fresh back from studying abroad in Berlin unplugs the iPod, plugs hers in, and says, this is what's hot in Berlin right now, and starts playing. (laughs) (laughs) Which I think just captures how cool Berlin is that she felt emboldened to do that. And it's it's mature in its coolness too, right? Like it feels like the 25-year-old that's managed to remain cool even with the 18-year-old. Who got a a tattoo that they won't regret at 45. Yeah, it does feel that way. Somehow Somehow it endures. And speaking of enduring, we can't part without talking about Iceland. Iceland has become the destiny. And again, with the same cohort that we're talking about, which is, you know, for lack of a better term, millennials, young people, whatever. But but I also feel like Iceland transcends. Um, Iceland is the destination of the moment, has been for the last few years, alongside these other places. To the that point that, about. like, I haven't been there and I'm, like, not... You don't want to confess that. Well, not only that, but I'm also, like, not... I know it's beautiful. I know there's amazing things to see, but it's not like number one on my list anymore just because I feel like I'm going to get there and just be surrounded by Americans. By Brooklynites. Yeah. No, I'm so, completely with you. I'm exactly in the same boat. I haven't been there yet, and I'm kind of like, did I miss the boat? Yeah, I think because, I missed yeah, it. Yeah, I'm going to go there, and it's going to be like everyone from So let's like, go back in, I mean, let's go back in time before we, <laughs> before we slag it for where it is now. <laughs> let's go back in time to 1987. I mean, Iceland was a rock, right? Like, mm-hmm. Iceland was, I don't mean Iraq, I mean a rock. 
it was it was it was not a place that people were thinking about going, were clamoring for. There weren't ninety nine dollar flights, you know. Like let's remember, in the piece, Iceland's only TV station used to go dark every Thursday, so you had to do something other than watch TV. In the 80s, which makes Britain seem forward-looking <laughs> and tech-savvy. Yeah, I just think there wasn't a civil war. There wasn't a major conflagration. There wasn't, you know, sort of a, a, these kind of conflicts and problems that maybe some of these other places have had. Um, there wasn't beat culture or whatever whatever the late 80s presented in San Francisco, you know, sort of benighted wannabeism. But there was kind of obscurity. The transition from that to where Iceland is today at the top of every, you know, sort of wannabe hipsters. But Iceland, and let's, I don't mean that to be, you know. No, but here's the thing, but Iceland to me embodies, we all, it's a very complicated relationship we have with undiscovered places. There's lots of buzzwords that when we write about destinations, I think we're all very conscious of not overusing. And I think Iceland capitalized on the sense that it was somewhere almost no one had been who wasn't Icelandic or Danish or somehow geographically adjacent. And it marketed the hell out of that. Now, when I went to Iceland for the first time in 2002, it felt very, very special. And I am allergic to the outdoors. And even I was startled by this lunar landscape. It was and let's, incredible. Let's say 2002, pre-Instagram, mm-hmm. pre-Justin Bieber, mm-hmm. pre-all of the... Pre-Icelandair creating the free stopover program, which we've talked about. There's a great, We have a, a great episode, an older episode of Travelog, if you, anyone hasn't heard it, um, about stopover programs and what the good and bad that they can do. And Iceland do. kind of led the way in that, right? And Iceland... Iceland Air created this. Whoever said, wow, we're kind of between North America and Europe. We could offer people a free stopover. That person, I hope, has the Icelandic equivalent of the Medal of Freedom or something. (laughs) Keys keys to the city. Whoever you are, if you're listening, please tell us. It was a brilliant idea, but I think Iceland, of all of our destinations, is probably the biggest cautionary tale. And how do you mean that? The cautionary tale? Because... We've written a lot about, we've looked a lot into over-tourism and the challenges of there being more visitors than the city knows how to shoulder effectively. And after Iceland made Reykjavik a coolness capital, go clubbing in Reykjavik, Blur were there, wow, cool. I mean, again, let's remember when Blur... Seb doesn't know who Blur I was. I Snigger from over in the corner. I love Blur. Um, a little they, too emphatic. They played for the Rolling Stones, Park right? Life. <laughs> but when, after, after this first burst, Reykjavik aggressively marketed itself to cruise ships, and I have been in Reykjavik on a day when cruise ships weren't there and then on a day when they were. And I would tell no one to be there when 8,000 people descend on this tiny town. I just saw this happen in the Azores. And that's why I was saying earlier, you know, the Azores, Portuguese islands in the Atlantic could be Iceland if they want it to be. Same focus on natural beauty, natural splendor, just kind of views that make your jaw drop. Um, and have you know a great stopover point between North America and Europe. Um, they haven't done it yet, and for that reason, I hope they don't. But I was there when I was there for five days, and on two of the days, cruise ships came into dock, and you saw just everything change. 
Suddenly like, there was traffic. Suddenly the places were packed. Suddenly, you know, it's like, and that's what did it to this, Iceland. This yeah. is interesting to me because, you know, you could say that about Venice. You could say that about Barcelona, right? And I, I, I would I would question whether, like, Reykjavik is actually in worse shape than Venice or Barcelona. And those are bigger cities, so, like, I get it. But but Venice has its own issues, and so does Barcelona. I mean, Venice is, like, in straight-up crisis. Yeah, now, right, like, exactly. Yeah. So, but I, I'm also curious, you know, I sort of feel like um, – there are parallels between Cape Town and Reykjavik. And Sarah, I'm curious, like, what is the cruise ship? Is there any cruise ship culture in Cape Town? No, not at all. I know it, it gets some cruise ships, I believe. And I know that they're in the works of doing a big new cruise terminal or at least a majorly upgraded mm. one. But I can't say that cruise culture has been a big thing there where it has dramatically changed the number of people that you see walking around. You don't notice it, I guess, right? Like the same yeah. way you would if suddenly the population doubled in Reykjavik. You know? yeah. And I think, exactly, Cape Town's a big city. I, I, and I don't want to slam Iceland. I think they've they've done a great job. And there's also probably plenty of parts of the country where you can go and be alone with well, nature. That's, why, and that's like, why I say this is because I certainly want to go visit Cape Town, but I also want to visit the rest of South Africa. Right. And, and same thing with Iceland. You should. Like, I want to go visit Reykjavik, but honestly, like, I live in Brooklyn. I don't really need that shit. Like, I can... <laughs> I want to go see the crazy shit that I can't, you know, right. see here and a lot of that natural but beauty. I, I would, I, I think it's interesting. There's a new, very high end hotel opening just outside Reykjavik at the Blue Lagoon, which is the geothermally heated pool. And what Iceland in its very egalitarian. Where you can find naked Brooklyn. <laughs> <laughs> uh, again, I'm not going to tell you my story of first going to the Blue Lagoon, but it's very uncomfortable. Um, <laughs> but the uh, the tweet me, and I'll tell you the full story. But in in DM though, because exactly, it's not, yeah, it'll so be reported. It's, there's not, not pictures. Not appropriate. But not appropriate. <laughs> because Iceland, obviously not Scandinavia, but very culturally connected to Scandinavia, the egalitarianness has meant that Iceland has marked itself as come one, come all. I am very interested and excited about the new very high-end hotel which is opening on the Blue Lagoon mm. next year. When Hillary Clinton went to Iceland, she wanted to go to the Blue Lagoon, but she wasn't able to because they don't close it down for anyone. And she quite rightly said, I don't want to be photographed in a bikini going in the Blue Lagoon as I'm a senior a political bunch figure. bunch of Brooklynites. <laughs> and when I could Beyonce, do that in Brooklyn. When Beyonce did that, she bought out the whole pool so that she could have the Blue Lagoon to herself. But I think as Iceland works out how to have high-end tourism, I would pay a little bit more to have a slightly more intimate experience with Iceland, which hasn't been available until recently. And I think that's the next step. And in 10 years' time, I don't think Iceland will be quite such a cautionary tale as I'm treating it right now in our sort of cadre of six. But I'm also, I also hearing a curiosity about how that's going to butt up against the egalitarian nature of the culture itself. And I, I, I was just going to say, I think nature lovers... People who are more adventurous travelers, who are more, I guess, rugged travelers who want to be out there hiking, trekking, camping. I think there are parts of Iceland's landscape that are just like too severe to be tamed and to be turned into tourism infrastructure. Yeah. So I think Iceland has that going for itself in that it's always going to be a destination for the more extreme traveler who wants, like I have a friend who went and just trekked for 10 days, you know, with like a backpack and just setting up camp along the way. He said he ran into like 
maybe 12 other humans yeah. in 10 days. But, yeah. So like that's still possible. And, and it's, that's going to be possible. The point you're making, Because of Mother Nature and Human Nature. We have, I'm guilty of treating, thank you again. <laughs> yeah, you're welcome. I'm guilty of treating Reykjavik and Iceland as synonymous and they're not. Reykjavik is one experience. And right. when I went to Akwari, which is the major town in the north in the Arctic Circle, it was incredibly untouched. Everyone mm. works in fish production there because that's the industry. So you can actually have an incredible mother nature experience in Iceland. I think Reykjavik is just really struggling. How now the blur is gone, but the cruise ships are there. <laughs> what do you do? They'll always have Bjork. <laughs> we had to end at Bjork. <laughs> like all podcasts. All podcasts should end with Bjork. I agree. Um, okay. Well, and that is an appropriate place for us to stop. Um, don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. We are on iTunes. We are on SoundCloud. And do visit us at cntraveler.com where you can read all of these different explorations of these destinations. And I would love to hear from you guys. If you have experiences of the places that we have talked about here, whether 30 years ago or today, that would be terrific. Um, we can hear you. We can hear you from 30 Mark and I can hear you, maybe even Sarah, from 30 years ago and today, and we would love to. Um, but also, So don't tweet at me? Is that what you're yeah, saying? Seb, Seb don't know nothing. Seb don't know nothing. Um, but no, I, I, I also would love to hear if there are other places that you feel like have really kind of transitioned and, and, and turned around in, in the last 30 years or 20 yeah, what years place or whatever. Do, what places, if we could add three or four more destinations to this list and round it out, say, to 10, yeah. what should we or could we have added? Yeah. yeah, make your case. Also, we are at Condé Nast Traveler on Facebook and YouTube, CN Traveler on Instagram, Twitter, and Snapchat, and please do tweet at us, send us feedback, review us on iTunes. Um, and uh, let's uh, tell the folk where they can find you, Mark. I'm at, at Mark J. Elwood on Twitter, and I love hearing from everybody. Thank you for all your feedback. I do want to thank Eric, at Erico. Um, you tweeted us multiple ideas, and thank you for your ideas. Meredith isn't here today, but she is the mastermind of all of this, so she is grateful for this. But thank you again, Eric. More ideas from us like you, and hopefully we can't tell you which of them will make a podcast, but I think we have a couple in the making. Sarah, how can folks get a hold of you? I am at by Sarah Khan on Instagram and Twitter, so please find me there. Great. Seb? Uh, well, first I'll say because Catherine had to uh, disappear. <laughs> she just vanished. I don't know what happened. I don't know what happened. Her mic um, got cut off. <laughs> she was talking too much. Uh, you can find her at KJ LeGrave, and you can find me at Seb Modek on all the things. And I'm at Brad Rick. Have a great weekend, everyone. Thanks for tuning in. <laughs>